Well, the scripture reading for this uh, morning is from Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3. And I'll read the whole chapter. Zephaniah chapter 3. To hear the word of the Lord. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted, to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Her princes are uh, in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In that day, you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will, make, I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed uh, their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart. 
O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away your judgments. The Lord has cast out your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you, to whom is reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will bring you back even at the time I gather you. For I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return uh, your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless his holy and inerrant word. Oh, dear congregation, how would we describe the past 22 months or so? Not just uh, our lives, our own lives, but as a nation, and also as this world globally. Would it not be fair to say that these times have been testing and trying, to say the very least? Times that can be full of discouragement, hopelessness, despondency, sadness, and grief. Maybe for some of us, this time has been very emotional for us. Many tears shed. Voices of frustration raised due to many uncertainties, many fears. Yes, perhaps we may be quiet for a time. And that quietness is not coming from that sense of peace and tranquility, but simply the reaction of being astounded, astonished, and alarmed. We may find ourselves surrounded by these trials and testings to the point that we become so very overwhelmed. And dear people of God, if we are honest with ourselves, we are not immune to these times. Perhaps over these months we can be so bombarded by the many fears and concerns in our lives and that we have become numbed to the things of God. And spiritually we can feel lost, we can feel disillusioned, wondering what will become of us, what the future would be. And maybe we have come losing that sense of fervency, missing that sense of closeness with the Lord. And spiritually, we find ourselves struggling. And we may find that even in the singing of God's word, losing that sense of joy. And we may find that losing that sense of joy in the use of other means of grace. 
And that they become simply a matter of customs and formality, feeling downcast, discouraged, and even depressed. Dear people of God, if we find ourselves in such a situation, if we find ourselves in the midst of this spiritual drought, well, what can we do? We need the Lord. And what does he do? What if I tell you that he is the God who sings over his people with joy? And that he himself is the people's joy. And that he is the only one who can break the spiritual winter in our hearts, in our lives, so that we may break forth in singing with joy also. And shall we not seek him for ourselves? This morning, and this is what we can write over the sermon for this morning. True joy in the God who rejoices. True joy in the God who rejoices. And we shall, with the Lord's help, consider Zephaniah chapter 3, primarily verse 17, under the three thoughts. The God who rejoices, firstly, as the king, secondly, as the warrior, and thirdly, as the bridegroom. The God, true joy in the God who rejoices as the king, as the warrior, and finally as the bridegroom. Dear congregation, the word of God this morning takes us to the southern kingdom of Judah to meet uh, this prophet, Sephaniah. And how much do we know about this prophet, Sephaniah? And indeed, this book. And for many of us, I'm sure, we may not be that familiar with it. But one thing we do know is that he is one of the minor prophets. And this book would have been written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at around 630 BC, 40 years before the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians in captivity. And Zephaniah would have been serving at the same time as Jeremiah. I'm sure the children here would know something of Jeremiah, the whipping prophet in the kingdom of Judah. But simply by looking at this timing, we can see how fitting the message that Zephaniah has been called by God to proclaim is. How relevant it is. He is serving as one of the last prophets, warning the people of Judah of the impending exile, the upcoming judgment, calling them to uh, repentance and faith, seeking salvation only found in the Lord. Yes, in this book, uh, we find uh, there are a lot of warnings from the Lord. Because Judah, at this, at that point in time, was a, Judah was a very spiritually dark place. And even as we come to chapter 3, the focus is on Jerusalem, the capital city, the center of life in the kingdom, financially, politically, and spiritually. But how does God see... How does God see the very heart of the kingdom? And we can read in verse 1, Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted, 
to the oppressing city. Friends, do we see how God sees? This verse, first one, is not talking about the surrounding nations. This is not talking about Assyria or Babylon. This is talking about Jerusalem. The place that has been so blessed with the things of God, the word of God, the presence of God. Now, Jerusalem is not marked by obedience and purity, but rebellion and pollution. Not a place willing to be oppressed for righteousness' sake, but has become the oppressing city. I mean, it is bad enough to have the foreign nations harassing and taunting Jerusalem. But the picture given given to us here is that in this capital city, this supposedly as the city of peace, that's what the Hebrew means, is where the Judeans would take advantage of those who are in a weaker position, ill-treating not just the foreigners, but the fatherless and their widows. Shedding innocent blood, even the blood of their own people. In a way, it is not that hard for us to picture, is it? As we live in a land that is full of oppressing cities. Yes, how many so-called financial hubs, powerhouses of our economy, even in this nation, are built upon scams, deceit, fraud, and dishonesty. The reason why, even in Canada, just like in Australia, we have anti-corruption agency, the reason why we have special police forces into business investigation, the reason why we have been told by the authorities to be vigilant of fraud is because much of our world and society are corrupted by sin. And taking advantage of the vulnerable and those who are in a weaker position can be seen as something that is taught by this dog-eat-dog world. But that's not it. We see that in Jerusalem and by extension the kingdom of Judah have been in some of the darkest spiritual times. Especially in the, relation, in the relationship with the word of God. We see that in verse 2. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Once again, we are not talking about pagan nations here. Who pagan nations who have, uh, that have not been exposed to the word of God. Uh, foreign nations that have never heard a true a prophet sent by God. No, we are talking about Jerusalem. And in that light, that rebellion and that pollution are not simply in relation to their fellow men and women, but ultimately against the God of Israel, completely disregarding the Lord's dealing with the people refusing to listen to him, refusing to be corrected by him, refusing to trust in him. 
instead trusting in and drawing near to the idols of this world. Wealth, extortion, princes and other mortal men. Once again, those days of Judah are not that different to our own days. As we look at the state of the nation, either here in Canada or in Australia, countries that were once so blessed with a godly heritage. And the word of God, remember, was once appreciated and respected in the public domain. But now the word of God is disregarded on many moral issues. Not just the keeping of the Lord's day, the sanctity of life, whether they they be unborn babies or what they say, euthanasia or assisted suicide, which is but self-murder. And the sanctity of marriage, the biblical understanding of gender, and indeed the exclusive claims of God. They are all vehemently objected. And not only that, in verses 3 and 4, Zephaniah is also pointing out the sins in the nation's leadership. Like roaring lions, evening wolves, with no hesitation about snatching whatever they want for their own gain, and justice is perverted. And also, <coughs> the sin within the church the false prophets with their deceitful and false doctrines, not speaking the word of God, but the words of man. And beyond that, the worship of God is polluted, profaned. Friends, are we not living in similar days also? If we think about it, these are truly daunting and confronting similarities. And just as the the Lord warned against the nation of Judah. He is warning against uh, our, the nation here and all the nations of the world of his impending righteous judgment, the greater judgment. But dear congregation, dear people of God, as we hear, as we see these uncomfortable similarities, we can be so filled with anxiety distress and hopelessness. We may be feeling sad and distraught. But thanks be to God. Just look at our text this morning. Zephaniah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't end the book with judgment upon judgment. No, there is hope. There is expectation. There is joy for the believing remnant. Not just in those days in Judah and in Jerusalem, but also for us, dear child of God. Yes, even as dark as these days may be, there is still a reason for joy. But that reason does not lie with us, but with God. Of who he is and what he does. And so let us look at our first point as the king, as the king. Friends, as mentioned before, there is this warning of judgment on Jerusalem in verses 1 to 5. And also in verses 6 to 8, judgment on the surrounding nations. But from verse 9 onwards, all the way to the end, <coughs> there is something for the believing remnant. 
And it is not a message of judgment, but a message of tremendous hope. Judgment is not the final word for the people of God. And in fact, just in these verses alone, we see actually ten times of the I will of God. These are not just the intentions from God. These are not like what we may say to one another from time to time. Well, I will do this or I will do that. In the sense that we're communicating, well, this is our intention, this is our plan. But we know that, don't we? Sometimes we cannot fulfill what we have intended or desired. But that is not so with the word of God. That is not so with his I will. No, these are words of his sure and faithful commitment to his people. And how encouraging these words would have been to the believing Judeans. Surely there would have been so much saying, so many words from both the political and the religious leaders, driven by so much rebellion and unbelief, having their own agendas, declaring to the people of Judah of, of their own I-wills from those leaders. Yes, they would be and the people of God would be so anxious. The people of God would be so worried about the, the plans, those plans driven by ungodliness, concerned about the future of their lives as part of the believing remnant. And dear people of God, do we not feel that? Especially in these days of rampant ungodliness in many areas of our society where injustice abounds. No doubt the, the unbelieving world is thinking that they must have somehow triumphed. Their I-wills, they think, have the power. But we see that differently, don't we, dear people of God? These are not signs of their freedoms and powers, but signs of their continuous provoking the Lord, awaiting his righteous judgment. And in one sense, the believing people of God, yes, we know that, don't we? We do not have any charter of exemptions when the Lord judges a nation. But even through that, we are humble to see not just the sin of the nation, but we see that even... Through that, our own sins, by our own sinful nature, deserving of the wrath of God, deserving the Lord's righteous judgment, our unrighteousness, our own rebellious hearts, deserve calamity. Friends, have we come to see that in ourselves? Our hearts have been filled by our sinful nature, have been filled with the I-wills, in our endless pursuit of self. And how much we need the grace of God without which we are absolutely rebellious against God. And then do we hear those wonderful words in verse 15? The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. How amazing it is for the believing 
Judeans to hear this wonderful declaration. This is not coming from man, but from God, the one who has been pleased to bestow his mercy, granting them the pardon that they need. And the Lord here is reminding them that he is ultimately the sovereign over all things, even over the nations. And although some oppressors, whether they are from the outside or even from within Judah, their so-called ruling power is simply by the permission of the Almighty God. And they are simply used as instruments by the Lord to draw the people to see that their trust must not be resting in the rulers of this world as their confidence. Do we see this, dear child of God? As we live in this world full of chaos, in the midst of many power struggles, even on the news, we hear that. There is so much of the will of man. Yet God is revealing himself as the true king of his people. The one who, ju- who, who, who does justly. The one who deals mercifully with his people. And dear congregation, how often do we meditate on this glorious truth that the Lord is king. Especially when we can be so discouraged by the authorities of this world being let down and seeing that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in many parts of the world being threatened and increasingly even threatened in this land, just like in Australia. And we can be so bombarded by the godless agendas of this world. But even in these seemingly dark days, the Lord remains sovereign as a king of Israel. Yes, this kingship does not belong to David or Solomon, but the greatest son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who declares that all authority is given to him in heaven and on earth. Dear congregation, the security for God's people is not found in the legislations, the leadership of this world, or even in the church, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friends, have we come to see that? Have we come to bow before him, submitting to the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ? As uncertain as these days may be, as hopeless as they may seem, there is this glorious, hopeful, certain truth. And this kingship of Christ is not some dry doctrinal notion in the head. No, it should impact our lives. As verse 16 says, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion, let not your hands be weak. How comforting, how encouraging it is to you and to me, dear people of God. This really speaks to us that the Lord is so tender to us. He knows the struggles that we have, yes, even as believers. The days of uncertainties can be so fearful. Yes, even during these days we can be fearful for our own, for our own health, fearful about the spread of the virus, fearful of further restrictions, fearful about the family, the economy, the government, the future generations, the state of Christianity in our land, in this land. And so on. 
And maybe this is how we have come this morning. To Even as we hear the word of God, we may have come to this place of worship with fear. And friends, this is where the, real, the reality check comes. Searching our hearts as to what and whom can remove our fears. It is not anything or anyone of this world, but the God who is our king. The one who sovereignly speaks, do not fear. And so, dear people of God, how do we receive the word of God, this call, this command from him? Do we simply treat that as some sound, some syllables? Or do we by faith take these words seriously? I know some of us may say, I know I hear these words, do not fear, but I truly struggle. I am struggling right now, struggling with knowing and obeying these words. And is that not another reason, dear child of God, to call upon the Lord, to make and to ask the Lord to make these words real for us? For he is precisely the sovereign king, the king who rules supreme. And there is also that encouragement from the word of God to flee from the despair, to flee from the inability symbolized by weak hands, we can't ready to give up. In other words, dear people of God, we are called to flee from that crippling fear to that true fear of God, which seeks to serve and labor in God's name, yes, even in dark and discouraging days. And secondly, we are to see that God rejoices as a warrior, as a warrior. We can read in the first half of verse 17. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. Here, my friends, God himself is identified as the mighty one who is strong to save. And when this phrase is used, we're given a picture of a warrior who brings victory and deliverance to the people. And this is what God is pleased to do for his people. And what are his people like? What are his people like? In verse 12, a meek and humble people, or as the authorized version puts it, an afflicted and poor people. An afflicted and poor people. Friends, this is the kind of people whom the Lord enjoys defending and fighting for. Not those who think so highly of themselves. Not those who can tell the Lord how deserving they are. How many resources they can utilize. Or how wise they are in their own strategy and strength. No, but the poor and needy. Afflicted not simply by the humbling circumstances. By afflicted. Because of the knowledge of the misery of their own sins. Those who have come to see that they have no might of their own. Those who have been humbled by the Lord to see that their own, to see their own poverty, to see their own neediness. Dear congregation, what kind of people does that describe us? Friends, is it the kind of people the Lord 
Do we come without pride? Or do we know what it means to be afflicted and needy? And this is the kind of people the Lord wants to be in their midst. This is absolutely unheard of. Because think of the famous soldiers in history, or even the great military generals and commanders of the 21st century. Those war heroes, when they obtain victory, who do they go to first? They would go to those who are rich and famous, very likely to the White House, Buckingham Palace, or uh, the parliament here, to meet with the prime minister. And they would want to be among the strong and the victorious warriors and military uh, personnel. And the last group of people that they want to be among would be those weaker ones, those insignificant ones. But God is not like that. He who is the mightiest of all rejoices and delights in being with his poor, needy, afflicted, and broken people. Do we see the picture of love and grace here? He is, his rejoicing is found, this rejoicing is found in him being with his poor people. God doesn't go away. He doesn't just stay beside or infinitely above, but in the midst. In the midst. Do we see what God is saying here? He is the one who is pleased to stand between his people and their trouble and their struggles. And he is the one who is determined to do every single thing necessary to be with his people. And is it not true in the Lord Jesus Christ? In his saving works. Is he not the one, the mighty one, who is mighty to save, who is delighted to save, that he takes pleasure in being with his people who have been made recipients of his salvation? In other words, the Lord Jesus is not simply the mighty warrior who does the saving. He enjoys it. He enjoys it also. And this is not in any way saying that he enjoys the sufferings. He enjoys the pain and even death. No, he enjoys <coughs> bringing, he enjoys accomplishing and applying that salvation for his undeserving people. Friends, we understand that, don't we? Say, for example, it is the birthday of someone we love. And we are planning a birthday party for that someone. And we want to do it for that person. But it doesn't mean that we necessarily enjoy doing all the other chores, all the preparation work. But, we en- but what we enjoy is the smile, the delight of our loved ones when he or she sees the fruit of our labor. And so much more so is the Lord Jesus rejoicing over his people with joy in granting salvation to them by removing their shame and guilt and their disgrace through his own works and through the shedding of his blood. There is this rejoicing of the Lord in saving people, his people, in being with the people. How intense, how strong. In verse 17, the Hebrew word for rejoicing appears actually three times in one verse. 
As we know, especially in the Hebrew, if something is mentioned twice, it's very important, it means. But three times it really speaks of the intensity of that joy, the happiness and the delight of the Lord in being with His people. Those who have been blessed to be mothers here, especially, don't you know that? When the children are scared, when the children are terrified, maybe having a bad dream, what is the yearning of a loving mother? Is it not to be with them? And it is indeed one of the sweetest moments the mother would put down every, any, everything else just to be with the children. And so much more so it is with the Lord Jesus having that delight to be with his people. And dear child of God, here we see the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ shown to us, not just for a moment, but in time and for eternity. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And it is not coming from the Lord who feels obliged or obligated, like some of us may do babysitting duty or waiting for the next grocery delivery is a chore. We have to do it, obliged to do it. No, Christ rejoices over being with his people. And so, dear people of God, the question that comes to you and to me this morning is, do we rejoice in being in the presence of the Lord? Do we have that burning desire to commune with the Lord in the use of the means of grace, to see that each opportunity is indeed extended by His grace and mercy and His delight? He rejoices over those times when we seek Him exclusively. And does it not encourage us? Or are we still dreading each time? Or lamenting each time, maybe? And how much we need the Lord, who is that mighty warrior, who has the power to remove that spiritual stumbling block in our hearts. And friends, He is delighted to do that. And thirdly and finally, we are to see God rejoices as the bridegroom, as the bridegroom. We can read in the middle of verse 17. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. And not only is God revealing himself as the one who rules over all, that nothing and no one can oppose his sovereign will, and that he is the mighty warrior who has brought salvation and victory to his people. But he is also that loving and faithful bridegroom to his people. And when we read these words, that he will rejoice over you with gladness. And maybe some of us will be reminded of Isaiah 62, verse 5, says, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Yes, that is the picture that the believing remnant need to be reminded of, especially when they face the frowns of man, the hatred of man, their ridicule and their rejection. Despite all that, there is the delight of God in his people as the bridegroom over his bride. 
Indeed, is that not shown to us in the person and in the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect bridegroom of his church? And when we think of marriage, what do we think of? We think of commitment, don't we? We think of faithfulness. We think of exclusivity. We think of lifelong commitment for better or for worse sickness and in health, rich or poor. And indeed, the unbelieving world, sadly, portrays marriage as a prison camp with lifelong sentence being trapped. But that is not what true biblical marriage should be. And certainly that is not the relationship between Christ and his church, the the bridegroom and the bride. The Lord Jesus does not feel trapped or in any way coerced to be in that relationship. No, he rejoices over it. He rejoices over his people. He delights in being in that relationship, to be in this bond with his poor and needy people. And this is a relationship filled with love, faithfulness, exclusive, committed love of God to his people in the Lord Jesus. And he is not content to simply to be in the relationship, in the formal sense. No, he is the one who has established, he is the one who has maintained that marriage. He is committed to do whatever for the well-being of his bride. What does he do? He will quiet you with his love. Those who have been blessed to be in a marriage, especially uh, husbands, well, husbands, one of the common failures we have is being insensitive to our wives. And we may not always be attentive to their emotions, their fears as required. And it is possible that we think that the best method to deal, to handle the situation is by being quiet. And certainly, yes, there is a place for that, to be a good listener to the needs of our wives. But there are other times, words of love, caring actions are required in order to reassure our loved ones. Well, look at the bridegroom of his church. How does he deal with the fears? How does he deal with the cries, the restless wandering, the pacing back and forth, as it were, of the, and the anxiety of his people? He is the one who is able to calm his people down, to quiet them. Just look at how tender the Lord Jesus is. It doesn't say he quiets his people with the law, in order to stop their mouths. It doesn't say he quiets them with loud rebukes. Like when parents in those moments being frustrated with naughty children carrying on, we can be very frustrated and shout. No, but that's not not with the Lord Jesus, but with his love. Just like the illustration used earlier, if a child is terrified, if the child needs the love of the mother, or in a scary situation, the wife may look for the presence of the husband, for protection, for encouragement. And in those situations, the husband may say to his wife, my darling, 
I'm here. Don't worry. Come to me. It's okay. And so much more so, dear people of God, the bride of Christ, we need the comforting, loving presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a fearful world. We may find many things disturbing, many things that are alarming. We may even have trouble sleeping. What we need is not the world telling us everything is going to be okay. No, we need the Lord who rejoices, who delights in quieting us with his love. And how is it so calming? How is it so comforting? Because when the Lord does that, he reminds us of what he himself has gone through, what he has done for us. And every single thing that he does, every single thing that he says, speaks so much of his never dying love. But this verse can also be translated as, he will be quiet in his love. He will be quiet in his love. And it speaks of that satisfaction in his divine love for his undeserving people. How do we understand that? Well, using that imagery of a child who is so scared because of a bad dream, and after receiving the reassuring love of the mother, well, the child goes to bed. And parents... What do we usually do when we see the kid going back to bed? We don't just leave them. Oh, well, good night. Off you go. No. We, we don't just leave them. Oftentimes we stand by quietly watching, seeing that the child is sleeping calmly. And there is that joy and comfort, isn't there? To see that the child is sleeping peacefully. And so much more so is God watching his people enjoying this peace and the comfort of salvation in his beloved son. Friends, there is no love in this whole wide world that can ever be compared to the love of God for his people. And so do we know of that love? Do we rest in that love of God rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Sabbath rest? And we also see the end of verse 17. He will rejoice over you with singing. And here the word of God brings out some melody. The melody is not from man, but from God himself singing over his people. It gives us a picture of the joy of the Lord being so great that it is bursting out, breaking forth in singing. It is a joyful song of love over his people. And it gives us a picture of the wedding procession, procession with songs of joy and gladness. The song of celebration. Friends, this is what God does. And have we really thought about this? There is nowhere in scripture that says that he sings over his angels. Those sinless creatures. But yet he would sing over his redeemed sinful humanity. This is really beyond our comprehension. That God would do such a thing. That he would sing over his people in great rejoicing. Delighting in being with them. Dear people of God, does it not cause us to wonder why? Why he would do this? We may say to ourselves, well, how can this be? Can God not see my poverty? Can he not see my sins? Can he not see my unbelief? The pollution within my own heart? My backsliding? My wandering steps? 
my sinful fears. It seems it is as if he doesn't know me. But yet, the Lord knows every single thing about us. About us. And so how is it possible that he would rejoice over his people? That he would sing over his people? Yes, there is a cost. A cost not on us, but on God himself. In order to have that singing and rejoicing, God the Son had to become the suffering redeemer in order to bring, to deal with the sins of his unfaithful, wandering, weak and feeble people. And on that cross of Calvary, remember, dear congregation, there was no song of love sung over God the Son, but the scream and cry of his suffering, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God the Father could not look upon his Son in love, but in righteous anger, as Christ had to bear the sin of his unfaithful bride. And so, my friends, have we come to know of this suffering Savior? Have we bowed before him in repentance and faith, not only for the first time, but again and again? Because without his pardoning grace, without that, there is no singing of God over us. There is only the sentencing from him on the last day in eternal damnation because of our sins. And how much we need him now who delights in saving sinners. Yes, even this morning. But to those who know by the grace of God the love of the bridegroom, the rejoicing of our warrior and king, the Lord Jesus Christ, how can we not rejoice? Even in these trying days. For he is the one who rejoices over us with singing. And this is what heaven shall be like. And how can we not heed that invitation and exhortation in verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Amen.